This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Scary story, right, from the Costco parking lot in Langford over the weekend where police say uh, two women started to argue over a parking spot. One woman says that she was waiting for this spot just as she was about to pull in. Someone else just came in and took it. And I guess when she got upset and they started to argue over the space, the woman who'd taken the parking spot reached into her car and pulled out a machete. Yeah, you can bet the police were called. That just seemed over the top, over a parking spot. Who does that kind of stuff? That's why we're asking you for our hot question of the day today. If someone took your parking spot that you had been waiting for, clearly you'd been waiting for this spot, right? And this is a very sensitive subject for a lot of people. How would you respond? Somebody just like swings in there and takes it. Would you just, oh, whatever, find another stall? Would you honk at them? Would you confront them? Or would you do something else? I'm not going to go there, but what would you do essentially? Let me know. You can check this out, our hot question of the day at SimiSarah980 on Twitter. You can also go to at CKNW. You can email me, Simi at CKNW.com. Maybe you've had this happen to you. Tell me your story, 604-331-2899. That is 331-BUZZ. And we will be revisiting this throughout the show today. But we want to know what's ever happened to you if someone took your parking spot. What would you do? All right, let's talk about your health here. And if you've been waiting for an MRI, then you know it is, it's a tough situation, right? Because you can't get a diagnosis from your doctor until you get an MRI, and yet you can wait months and months to have one done. Well, this morning, important announcement then from BC's Health Minister, Adrian Dix. He says the province is adding an additional 15,000 MRI exams just this year. Another four machines are going to be added to increase capacity. Uh, At the beginning of this year, it looks like BC had 10 of our 33 MRI machines in the province running 24-7. That's a pretty big increase over the last year and a half. And they're saying, you know, last year alone, they added an additional 44,000 MRI exams. And the health minister says this is a big change for BC. It is, and I want to say this, an extraordinary achievement for the public health care system in British Columbia to do this in one year, to be amongst the worst provinces and to have moved significantly up in comparison to other provinces, but mostly providing services for people who are waiting for care and we're not getting it, or we're being forced to pay for care when we have a public health care system that should have been providing it. Now, that point is really important. There's a lot of people out there who paid privately to get their MRI just so they can get a diagnosis. So how significant is this? We wanted to talk more about this now with the help of our good friend Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Hi, Keith. Hey, Simi. Uh, Adrian Dick sounded very pleased about this. Oh, uh, yes, he is, and he has been pleased for some time. He has uh, been uh, spending money as a health minister, unlike we've ever seen, really, in the past. His ministry spending got an increase from year to year of more than a billion dollars, which is a staggering amount of money. Uh, I remember a few years ago when the health ministry budget went up a half a billion. That was impressive, uh, and an indication of just how much costs were escalating. Now it's going up over a billion dollars, but it's not, unlike the past, it's not necessarily to keep pace with the status quo. Dix has been very active on two fronts. One is the MRI um, uh, procedures have really ramped up under his watch. He's made a strategic effort to really put money into that area, knowing that it, it, it matches the demographic need increasingly as people age, uh, as our, the baby boomer generation uh, ages and needs those types of procedures for, for uh, lifestyle, if not anything else. And also, he's increased the number of, of surgeries that are happening around the province with these new, uh, and, and also sort of transforming emergency care. Part of it is to obviously improve public service, no question, and public demand, meet public demand. But part of it is also not so subtle war on private clinics. As you mentioned, a number yeah. of people pay for MRIs because they're forced to go to a private clinic because the health, uh, public health side takes too long. So, uh, Dix, by. Um, and I just asked him this in the hallway, as a matter of fact, a few moments ago. What impact does this have on uh, on private clinics? He says, I don't know, but presumably it's not going to have a good impact on them because we're we're taking their market from them. And so by increasing uh, significantly the number of MRIs and the number of surgeries, that takes away the business from a number of clinics around BC. And Adrian Dix is really driven, on, I think, on a partly ideological perspective to really drive down public uh, private uh, health care in this province and get rid of what he calls the two-tier system and really ramp up the public side. Right. And for people, right, they're not going to care as long as they can get this done. 
That's uh, that, one would think. Uh, you know, just you need that procedure. And what's interesting, you mentioned the the twenty four seven operations for some yeah. of these machines, unheard of a few years ago. Now it's increasingly. The, it's not just twenty four seven. Nineteen hours is also, I think, a number of other machines are operating. So people are quite willing, if they have to, get up and go get an MRI at three o'clock in the morning. And I think uh, Dix obviously sees that the public response is there for that. So I think you're going to see increasingly more twenty four seven or longer operating hours of MRI machines and more MRIs coming online. This is a this is a, a, a noticeable shift in health care spending strategy than what we saw from the previous government. I noticed it with the numbers that they presented this morning as well. It showed that has BC not been keeping up with other provinces in terms of the number of MRIs administered? Well, yes, we haven't been. And I think one of the Dix's take on this is that the previous government saw the private sec, private clinics as sort of a, an outlet to relieve fiscal pressure on the government spending. So uh, by not funding MRIs or, or investing as much in MRIs, knowing the private side would do that, and that would take pressure off the public side. But this is clearly a different approach, both uh, strategically and philosophically, is that, no, we will spend the public money on the public side to uh, meet the, the public demand for this service and not require people to go to the private side. Again, it's uh, it's part of, I think, a broader strategy to really sort of drive down the role private uh, health care plays in B.C. Are they targeting particular health authorities and, like, how soon is this going to take effect? Well, my understanding is the dollars generally uh, follow the population. So uh, Fraser Health, for example, is getting is buying uh, bought, bought two more last year, and I think they're getting another one as well. Uh, some of the, some foundations actually, uh, Dick tells me, some fa- private foundations actually fund some of the. Um, some of the uh, MRI purchases. It's not huh. just always done by by uh, the government. I know certainly here I did a story a few years ago, an MRI up in Duncan here on the island was uh, purchased by a private foundation, but given to the public side to uh, to operate in the public system. So, I mean, most people live in the Vancouver Coastal and Fraser Health. I mean, that's where you're going to see most of these services performed because that's where the population is. But certainly Island, Interior, and North are going to get their share as well. I remember always hearing, Keith, that the health ministry was so huge that, you know, that response that portfolio is so big that you really couldn't make it turn very well, right? Because it's such a huge ship to make it turn in another direction. And yet it seems to be doing that. I think the case can be made that there are things being done differently. And partly because there is more money. I mean, more than a billion dollars is a staggering amount of money uh, from year to year. And again, that exceeds the status quo. And you're right, steering that ship was very difficult because a lot of it wasn't really new things going on. It was simply the, the status quo, trying to keep pace with a with the, the public service demand. Now, by increasing MRIs and surgeries, uh, that is steering the ship in a different direction. It's exceeding the service output, I think, uh, that was there a few years ago. It's not just simply meeting the status quo. It's going beyond that. It takes dollars to do that, no question, and that's reflected in the budget, which, again, when I saw that budget in uh, February, I, I, my jaw dropped that because I'm always tracking health care spending. Yeah. And when you see a $1.1 billion lift from year to year, you know there's going to be more things happening in the health care system than it happened the year before. It wasn't just keeping pace with inflation. And you mentioned the private health care situation as well. Like, isn't there still that lawsuit going on? Yes, there's the, the, the Brian Day lawsuit. There's also Dick's is sort of... Uh, stood down for now his own little war on clinics. We'll see if that's where that goes in the months ahead. But uh, that fight is not over, and particularly with this government. Uh, this government, the NDP has made, a, made it clear they don't, they don't intend to turn a blind eye to the role private clinics and private health care plays in B.C. They very much want to turn this uh, all the way back to the public side. Keeping in mind, private clinics do perform surgeries on behalf of the public side, yes. which is like uh, workers' compensation claims, for example. And sometimes private clinics are contracted out by uh, public health authorities because they just simply don't have the space themselves. But uh, beyond that, I think the NDP government wants to uh, really drive down the role private sector uh, health care plays in B.C. And I think right now, there obviously there's some evidence that uh, they're succeeding at least to some point. All right, we'll see. Well, thank you so much for your time, Keith. That is Keith Baldry, our Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief, talking about MRIs. Right now, though, let's update you on the money laundering whistleblower story that we've been hearing from Sam Cooper all this week. Uh, He has been doing his investigative series on Global News. You can actually find a lot of the other stories that he did on globalnews.ca, including his latest one today, where he kind of delves into the new data and the notes that have been provided by an employee of Great Canadian Gaming and takes a look at what she observed at the company's casino in Richmond. So yesterday we told you that the dealer supervisor, Muriel Labine, 
documented cash transactions, which clearly appeared to be drug money laundering by gangsters, including the big circle boys. But according to the records, complaints to management were essentially ignored. The casino was making big profits from these cash transactions, and no one wanted to turn off the flood of dirty money, according to Muriel Levine. So Premier John Horgan yesterday, who says that he hadn't seen the latest copies of Sam's stories, was asked about this. There's much more work to do, and I just don't know what the value is of going back uh, two, three decades, or two decades in this case, and saying, hey, that's where it started. Oh, there's value, because I don't know how we're not going to learn lessons about what not to do if we don't go back and see the mistakes that we made in the past. Well, today we're learning from Sam Cooper that the founder of Great Canadian Gaming, a man named Ross McLeod, corresponded with Muriel Labine on her complaints. Documents show as well that McLeod and Great Canadian Gaming made a shocking counter-allegation here, suggesting that a BC union wanted to work with Labine to organize the Richmond Casino and threatened the company to reveal Labine's allegations through the press, but would not go to the press with allegations of loan sharking and money laundering if Great Canadian recognized the union. Well, Sam Cooper was on the John McComb show this morning, and he told John about the meeting between the whistleblower, Muriel Labine, and the founder of Great Canadian Gaming, Ross McLeod, where she says she expressed her concerns with what she had been seeing at the casino. That's right. In this second story, what we've revealed is that we're starting to get into the the knowledge at the executive level of the company of what kind of alleged criminal and gang activity was occurring in the Richmond Casino. And our report shows that in in these complaint letters, uh, Ms. Muriel Labine, a former dealer supervisor, outlined her concerns that in her perception, she believed there was some level of cooperation between casino management and organized crime. That's an extremely serious allegation. Uh, Jumping back to what Premier Horgan just said, I can't understand how BC's government would not want to look back at allegations that potentially casino management had made some sort of deal with organized crime. Potentially, BC's government was turning a blind eye to Macau casino money laundering. And I'll just jump ahead to something I'm going to get into. Mm -hmm. We now have evidence that a Macau gang war was directly related to crime activities happening in BC's streets in 1997 and 1998 and activities in the casino. So back to Ms. Labine's letter, she alleged that uh, she had complained over and over again about this gain activity. Mr. McLeod responded that, um, actually, I have investigated your complaints now. I'm satisfied that our company has dealt appropriately with what you call criminal activity. We, in fact, have banned uh, certain individuals. He would not use the name, uh, the words loan sharks or gangsters. And uh, the, short, uh, the short story is he said, we've done what we're supposed to do. We've informed the police there's some sort of investigation. And uh, thank you. Your complaint is dealt with. Okay, well, once again, I'm going to reiterate, to read all of Sam Cooper's stories, just go to globalnews.ca. He also went on to tell us that his informant, who is the former dealer supervisor, Muriel Labine, kept track of the excuses that management made for the suspected gang members being in the casinos and actually at one point dismissed the gamblers and loan sharks as, quote, just friends lending money to friends. That's right. According to her detailed journal records, when staff complained over and over, people that we now see as co-workers in the casino, the excuse uh, from their view that management said over and over again was, how do we know it's not just friends giving money to friends? And uh, I have gone to a manager, that a former manager that actually did talk to me, and uh, and his answers confirmed that this was this was an answer that was given. Uh, this former manager said, how do we know they're not friends? Well, in some cases, when you see it often enough, yes, we did decide. These are, again, he would not use the word loan sharks, but mm-hmm. these, are, these are people that maybe shouldn't be in the casino. So we told them, you can't be doing that in front of us. Take it out to the parking lot. If you're going to do it, you can't do it in the casino in some cases. 
Boy, that is really something, isn't it? That is Global News investigative reporter Sam Cooper uh, talking about his latest stories involving money laundering uh, and whistleblowers talking about it. So if you'd like to read more, as I mentioned, go online to globalnews.ca. You'll see all of his complete coverage on this topic, and I know there is more to come. Do you remember that story that we were talking about about a month ago? It would have been March 28th. This was the hostage taking in Surrey. It had closed off neighborhoods. There was a lot of concern about what was going on, particularly from the neighbors. And we know that in the end, a man and a woman were killed. This morning, some stunning information has been released about that by the Independent Investigations Office. Uh, the IIO says the woman who was being held hostage was actually shot and killed by police gunfire. We're going to hear more about this now from Janet Brown, our Global News senior reporter who joins us. Hi, Janet. Good morning, Simi. Yes, and it's really shocking news this this morning. Obviously, uh, police were not uh, wanting to shoot and kill the woman, but it must have been some spare bullets that ended up killing her in the end. Uh, they were trying to rescue the woman from a hostage taker in the central city area late March, as you said. Uh, he, she was being held by a man in a house actually just a few blocks from Surrey City Hall. Uh, the hostage taking started the night before about 11 p.m., and just between 7.30 and 8 a.m. in the morning the next day, police stormed the house to obviously try and rescue the woman. Uh, in, in the gunfire, the man holding the woman, Simi, was shot and killed. Uh, we had also heard at the time that the woman had been injured and died later in hospital. And today the study news is that she died, as you say, as a result of police gunfire. I spoke earlier today with the chief civilian director of the Independent Investigations Office, Ron McDonald, and I asked him, what are people going to think when they hear this? Obviously, it's going to be very upsetting to hear that this woman was killed yeah. by so-called friendly fire, Simi. Here is more of what he had to tell me. We're at a point in our investigation where we determined that it was appropriate to notify the public uh, after having notified the uh, affected person's families that um, the evidence to this point demonstrates that the female uh, in this matter did die from two uh, gunshot wounds from police. Um, the male involved uh, died from multiple gunshot wounds from police. And just to be clear, uh, at this point in the investigation, it was the woman who was being held hostage by the male, correct? That, exactly. That it was the uh, initial report, and we have, uh, we have no evidence to suggest otherwise um, at this point in time. So just to be clear, you said that the woman was killed by two bullets, is that correct? Two shots? By two shots, yes. Do you know how long she lay dying inside yet until uh, she was discovered? Um, it was all, that all was a, a very quick. Uh, she was uh, the incident took place um, basically all at the same time. She was immediately given uh, first aid by the police on scene, and and as we know, taken to hospital where she uh, later passed away. Ron, obviously the public's going to be pretty upset to hear this because clearly this was the woman that they were trying to rescue, and she is being killed basically by friendly fire. We understand those issues and, and those questions that surround uh, this uh, discovery, um, th this evidence. And so th that's obviously a now a focus of our investigation to determine all of the background and circumstances surrounding how this occurred. Um, and, and that is exactly why the IIO is in place to look at these types of situations, uh, do an independent and objective investigation and attempt to answer all of the questions uh, for the public. So, Janet, has there been any response from Surrey RCMP about this? Uh, not yet, Simi. Uh, to tell you the truth, to be honest, I haven't even had time to reach out to them. This story is just breaking, and it's still, still really unfolding, Simi, just getting reaction. As you heard from the IIO, the next step is to reach out to the Surrey RCMP. But sometimes members of the emergency response team are not only made up of members of Surrey RCMP. Right. They come from different areas of Metro Vancouver, so it's not just the Surrey RCMP involved in this. Although, as you say, I will be reaching out to them to see if they do have any comment. But clearly, 
this is a very um, upsetting, uh, stunning turn in this investigation. And the investigation continues as well. So far, the IIO has done a total of 40 interviews of uh, witnesses, both police and civilian members of the public, and uh, significant forensic work involved in this case as well. Uh, the end result, Simi, could be, uh, you never know, there could be charges against perhaps some of these officers involved. That is the job of the IIO to decide if there was any fault involved at all, or maybe there was no fault at all. But there is more to come definitely in this story. I guess, I mean, this is why we have the Independent Investigations Office, as you pointed out. And the information that they released here seems quite timely. We don't normally hear about cases like this so quickly. Uh, obviously, the IIO has been getting lots of follow-up calls from the media because ah. there were a lot of unanswered questions from that hostage taking that day. It was clear they had told us at the time, uh, after it all wrapped up, that the man had been shot and killed by the police, the man who was holding the woman hostage. But the big question was, uh, we knew she had passed away as a result of injuries, but the big question at the scene that day, I remember, Simi, because I covered it, was, did she die as a result of police gunfire or was she injured in some way? by the man or shot by the man who was holding her. So now we finally have uh, those answers. All right. There's more to come on this. Janet, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Simi. Thank you. That is Global News senior reporter Janet Brown updating us on this. As she put it, stunning. I mean, that's really the only word you could use there for that. Uh, stunning developments in that hostage taking that happened in Surrey back on March the 28th, where the man and the woman uh, were killed after an overnight hostage taking. Well, here's something that you don't hear about every day, particularly in Metro Vancouver. The living wage has gone down this year. That is the first time in years that has happened. So the living wage is the amount of money that someone needs to earn in order to get by in the region. It is a key measure of affordability. It's an hourly wage that is needed for a family of four who have two parents working full-time to pay for the necessities uh, to support their children and maybe not have as much financial stress and to help them do things also out and about in the community. And so, first time, 11 years, the living wage has actually gone down. Last Last year, the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives figured that the living wage would be about $21 an hour. Now, they're saying this year, $19.50 an hour. That's for Metro Vancouver. It's a lot lower if you're, say, in the Kamloops area, where the living wage is calculated at $14.38 an hour. So, why is this? Why such a substantial drop after all this time? Well, largely because of childcare. Uh, the new provincial programs that allow for $10 an eight day childcare, even though it's like a pilot program, but uh, clearly thousands of parents have been able to opt into this and be picked for this program. Apparently that is enough to make the difference. And that's why we wanted to talk about this with BC's Minister of State for Childcare, Katrina Chen, who joins us now. Well, Minister Chen, thank you so much for joining us today. I guess this is one of those times where you really want to come on and talk about something good. Definitely. This is a really happy news for British Columbians. All right. So tell us about it. What has happened? Well, uh, the living wage report that was released yesterday shows that the living wage uh, has gone down in BC, which uh, sounds like a, a, an odd news, but it is a good news, which means that more people are finding life getting more affordable in BC. And it is mainly, uh, according to the report, due to the, our government's investment in childcare and making life more affordable. Okay, so it went down from over $20 an hour to about nineteen fifty an hour. How much of a difference do you think that will make for people? I think it'll, it'll mean a lot. Um, not a week go by that I don't hear from families uh, who are sharing with stories with me about how, because now they get a fee reduction, you know, up to $350 off, or they are on our child care benefit, that uh, sometimes many families in BC now currently only pay less than $10 a day child care that it means that they will have more room for their budget to be able to make the ends meet, put better food on the table, being able to pay for more kids' activities. Um, many mothers, especially women, <laughs> who are telling me that they're able to take on a full-time job and return to their career. So I think it's exciting news for BC. Um, it means that it's good for families, good for our children, for early learning opportunities, and also really good for our economy, um, as many employers have been really struggling with recruitment and retention of workers. Okay, so if this is working so well, then why not do it on a wider basis? Oh, uh, we're doing as fast as we can. 
as you know that um, uh, in terms of childcare and early learning opportunities, many families in BC have been really struggling with high cost of childcare. Um, and even if you are a family that is able to afford childcare costs, um, that sometimes you may not be able to access spaces. And a lot of providers and early childhood educators are also struggling in this sector with very low wages or a lack of support. So what our government doing is really to put together a comprehensive strategy. So it's no longer patchwork. We need to look at how can we make childcare affordable, accelerate the creation of spaces, and also supporting the workforce. So there's a lot of work that we are doing. But uh, in the first three years of our budget, start, started last year, that we make sure that there's significant investments going into the sector. Um, at the same time, bring down the childcare costs as much as we can in the first three years. So now, currently, if you're a family making the income of uh, sixty to eighty thousand dollars, you may be paying about ten dollars a day childcare, and um, the income tested measure goes all the way up to a hundred and eleven thousand dollars. But we also have a non-income tested fee reduction that's across the board for all families to be able to get fee reduction from child care centers as we work together to build a better system. Right. So now that you've gotten feedback from people and you can see what the results are, though, can we expect this to grow? And, and when do you think that might happen? I surely hope to. <laughs> that, and that is mainly, uh, one of the many reasons why we have the child care prototype sites, um, the pilot sites that we have throughout BC communities to learn how do we work with different providers. Uh, currently, the childcare sector is very diverse. There are so many different ways of running a childcare center. Um, uh, parents are being charged in different ways, and there's many different types of opportunities and operators throughout BC. So we are learning how to work with the sector, uh, how much it would cost, but also at the same time through the prototype site, looking at how affordable childcare will be able to support parents when it comes to their uh, economic and career opportunities. So um, there's a lot of things we're looking at. So we'll be able to budget uh, for the coming year's plan, uh, our four to seven year plan, and also have a better idea of what is the best way to uh, work with the sector and be able to create a better system. Yeah, what are businesses telling you about this? Like, what are employers saying? Has it made a difference to them? Uh, I think so. Uh, we're, you know, I've visited a lot of uh, Chamber and Commerce and um, Board of Trade that it sounds like um, they do find uh, that uh, some of their workers, because the, the, the fact that they can uh, have better access to childcare and also paying more affordable costs, that uh, recruitment and retention uh, has definitely been improved, but uh, we are currently collecting more statistics, And uh, but there's a lot of good stories of how um, their employees are able to return to work and more families are able to live in a community where they want to live. Uh, I'm an MOA from Burnaby, and I always hear my local constituents sharing that because of the cost of housing, cost of childcare, uh, cost of transportation, that they just find it harder and harder to be able to stay in Burnaby. They have to move further and further away. And now I'm hearing a lot of local families who are able to afford uh, the cost of, uh, you know, have a better chance right. to be able to stay in our community. It's a bit of a problem, though, isn't it? Because, like, some families can get in on this, but not all families can. And if you're one of the families who aren't getting this kind of amazing deal for childcare, you'll feel left out. <laughs> Well, currently, uh, that is the reason why we have three different measures. So I know the, um, a lot of people have been focusing on the pilot sites, uh, the 53 pilot sites over BC, but that's not the only measure. Um, so if you look at the living wage report, which is uh, exactly what it's talking about, that we have the fee reduction program, which is not income tested. So we work with providers. They join our program. And last year, we already have uh, over 53,000 providers that have joined this program. Benef oh, sorry. 53,000 families, I'm sorry, <laughs> that's uh, benefiting from this program. And uh, it's, it's been a great success, and families are able to get a fee reduction regardless of their income, up to $350 per month. And uh, many other families, as I mentioned, between, for example, the income of sixty dollars and $80,000 are paying uh, less than $10 a day with uh, another uh, initiative, the Child Care Benefit, um, that is also making childcare costs more affordable. And many families under the income of $45,000 are paying very little or no cost at all for their childcare. And the reason why um, there's additional income tested measure is also because we're looking at a lot of middle income earners up to the income of $111,000. They're the ones who are really struggling with their choices, whether if they should return to work or pay for high childcare costs, which is uh, pretty much the majority, um, the vast majority of their salaries going into childcare. So we definitely want to support more families. And other than our prototype sites, there's tens and thousands of families who are paying local child care. Right. So do you think that this number is going, the living wage number, then will that continue to go down? 
Uh, well, I surely hope that our government, with all of our investments, with you know eliminating MSP in housing and childcare, that we will continue to make life more affordable for BC. All right, we'll see what happens. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs> Thank you. Have a great day. It's Katrina Chen, BC's Minister of State for Child Care, taking a bit of a victory lap there because the living wage in Metro Vancouver actually went down. Well, let's expand a little bit more on one of the stories that you were hearing about in the news today. And this has to do with home sales, particularly in the month of April. What we are seeing is that demand continues to fall, supply continues to rise. And that is the assessment of the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver at this point. What does it say about the state of the housing market, particularly here in BC? And what's really going on there? Well, we're going to talk more about this now with Ashley Smith, who is the president of the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. How would you sum up the situation right now? Um, Really, at the end of the day, sales are well below long-term averages right now. Um, So, you know, it it feels like we're at a bit of a standstill um, in terms of sales. Buyers and sellers not agreeing on prices, um, and we're seeing that, and it's allowing uh, listings to accumulate, of course, for that reason. Yeah, is there still a disconnect then between what people are asking for their homes versus what potential buyers are actually willing to pay? Absolutely. We are seeing that. We are seeing, of course, some folks who are out trying to find really great deals and, and maybe perhaps not getting it yet. Um, and we're also seeing challenges with um, you know buyers being able to get mortgages in order to afford those properties. Okay. So were there any bright spots? Like what's actually happening in the markets? What is moving? Um, right now, we're actually seeing sales down in general um, across attached condominium and uh, detached uh, certainly in more of the entry level uh, segments, we're seeing a bit more movement. And of course, in the more higher end, let's call it luxury side, it's, it's, the sales are very low. Okay, so we're looking at what, 1,829 sales last month. Uh, that is a big difference between that and what the 10-year sales average was. It is, yes. It's like something 43%. Yeah, last year in March, or sorry, last month in March, we saw the lowest number of sales for that month since 1986. So that was pretty telling. We have seen a bit of an increase in sales this month over last month, but certainly nothing to get excited about. (laughs) Yeah, isn't this normally the busy time of year? Generally speaking, yes, spring can be very uh, busy. Um, we tend to see spring and fall as the busier months. Um, that said, uh, Greater Vancouver area really hasn't followed a lot of the trends for many years. So we were seeing really high-paced winters and high-paced summers as well. So certainly um, seeing a correction in, in that regard. All right. What about prices then? How are we doing on that front? Um, prices have seen a decline, uh, perhaps not as extreme as one would think given the low number of sales, and that really speaks to the buyers and sellers not being aligned. Um, but we're about 11% down and detached uh, in terms of the HPI price across the region, uh, about 7% uh, down in the uh, attached and condo market. Okay, so Ashley, what does that tell us then? Because does that tell us that maybe buyers are thinking prices are still going to come down even more? I think we're seeing two sides. We're certainly seeing buyers thinking that prices will come down longer. Um, as an example, in my business, I have listings where I've seen buyers in December come back in February, come back in March, come back in April. So they are certainly kind of sticking around, huh. seeing what's going on and watching. Um, and some are starting to make offers, but the statistics certainly aren't showing sales yet. Um, and then, of course, there's the other folks who are really just trying to get into the market and struggling with their financing. Because on the flip side, we are seeing deals collapsing because financing is not coming through. So I think there's two types of buyers in the market right now in that regard. So it, it mm-hmm. sounds like the demand is still there, right? If people are like checking back in, they're essentially just waiting for what they think is the right moment. It feels like that across many uh, of the areas and and, uh, housing types, Uh, certainly. uh, The open houses are busy. Realtors are reporting um, generally busy open houses. Of course, it's not going to be the same across every property. Um, But yeah, if if a property has been on the month or on on the market, for example, for more than two months, and there's still very active uh, open houses, uh, that says something for sure. Yeah. So what do you think has to happen then to get things moving a little bit better? Do, Do sellers have to get more realistic? Um, it could be both sides of things. I mean, it's certainly, I don't want to deny it, so it's a trending towards a buyer's market or is a buyer's market in more, most areas. Um, so sellers certainly do need to, uh, you know, ch- 
check in with their expectations. Uh, that being said, some buyers may need to as well um, with some of the offers that we're seeing come in extremely low, for example. Um, and then, you know, there is a bit of a nervousness in the marketplace still too with, with taxes uh, that have been um, introduced over the last year and a half. Um, people are just a, a little cautious, I think, about heading into the market right now. Right. So how do you mm-hmm. deal with that then? Even as a realtor, like, what do you say to potential clients? Um, I think at the end of the day, it really depends on what their priorities are. Um, for folks who, you know, are eager to sell, you do have to be priced really competitively. And, and you may need to take a price that um, falls below what your expectations are. Um, on the same side, if you're a buyer and you're simply just looking for a screaming deal, sure, you have a lot of time right now uh, to be reviewing your options, doing your due diligence, comparing properties. Um, it, so it really depends who you are and what your needs are. Um, and then just making sure that you get accurate information or basing your um, move on sound sound data, sound information. Right. So what is mm-hmm. selling out there? Is there any kind of a bright spot in the market? Um, generally speaking, I mean, I don't know if we'd say bright spot. Um, certainly, you know, we are seeing sales in, in entry level um, of all segments. That said, for example, in, in Vancouver, you're not seeing many detached homes listed before or below a million dollars. So areas where there are detached homes under a million dollars and, um, you know, folks are able to deal with obtaining a mortgage, uh, you're seeing more activity. Right. I feel like the, the stuff mm-hmm. that is priced close to a million dollars, even if it is over, that stuff is being snapped up. Some some are. So it, it, it again, depends on, on where you're at. And um, it, they might be snapped up, but they certainly might be seeing prices that are a tad bit below what they would have sold for last year. Right, right. So if somebody mm-hmm. is aggressively pricing their home for sale, they're probably uh, in better shape than somebody who still wants a certain price in their head. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the first couple of weeks is always very indicative of of what to expect. So, um, you know, if you're priced well, um, you know, you should at least be getting bites in the first couple of weeks. Doesn't mean you'll get an acceptable offer, but you should at least have interest. (laughs) (laughs) That's the way the market is right now, right? Yeah. Ashley, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. That is Ashley Smith, president of the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver. I still see it. I still see that disconnect between asking prices and stuff that is actually selling. We've talked a lot on the show lately about social media companies and the trouble that they are having, in particular, Facebook. Facebook has come under fire a lot in the last couple of years and the last couple of months for issues in dealing with your privacy, for allowing kind of fake news to proliferate, not really doing anything about it on their platform. And also because they're giving a platform to some people who are really pushing like hate and some crazy ideas out there. They made a major change on that front just today, a couple of hours ago, actually. Facebook announced that it had actually designated some very high profile people as, quote, dangerous, and it's going to purge them from the platform completely. So people like Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan, out. Uh, Alex Jones, right-wing conspiracy theorist, out. Like we are talking, all these people are going to be removed from Facebook. Uh, That Mila Yiannopoulos, also out. Uh, Essentially, Facebook is saying that it's not about political ideology. They claim it's about the fact that they have always banned individuals or organizations that promote or engage in violence and hate. I don't know about the always. I think people wanted them to do that always, but the problem is that they weren't always doing that. And now, uh, since they've recently promised to do better to eliminate hate speech from their platform, uh, this is where we are at. So we're going to talk more about this now with the help of our guest, uh, Blaine Kylo, who is a technology journalist at SoloCorp. Blaine, thanks so much for joining us. No problem. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Were you surprised about this, that Facebook did this? Um, no, like you, this is something that I, I've kind of been waiting for the other shoe to drop. And while Facebook has been claiming to do better and do more, um, we've kind of been waiting to see what that would look like. A couple of things that are different. I mean, Alex Jones is a good example. He was actually removed from Facebook and Infowars were removed from Facebook last year. But he still had a presence on Facebook because he was appearing on other people's channels on Facebook And he still had all of his Instagram up and running. And for those people who might not be familiar, Instagram is owned by Facebook. 
they're essentially the same company. Now, InfoWars and Alex Jones are also off of Instagram. Ah, interesting. Okay, so then even though, it's funny, Facebook has a tendency to kind of do one thing and then nudge, nudge, wink, wink, do another. Yeah, and and again, that's what's happened today is sort of doubling down, I think, on this commitment to doing something about hate speech. And one of the, the repercussions here is um, some of these accounts, um, like Milo Yiannopoulos, for example, um, the reason that his account is coming down is because now if you are found to be posting content or promoting the ideas of the people who have been identified as promoting hate speech, you're also going to be impacted. And so this gets rid of that back door that Jones and others have used to try and keep a presence on these platforms by just going on other people's things. And so now if I as an individual am going to start sort of spouting Alec Jones's stuff and promoting all of his stuff, that's going to impact me and Facebook's going to kick me off too. Right. I guess. So why did Facebook let this kind of fester for so long? Like what was the benefit to them, do you think, in allowing all this to just continue to happen on their platform? Well, the, 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 the cynic in me would suggest that there's money to be made and that's why it's ah. happening. Certainly, um, th- there is lots of cry from people who support some of these um, ultra-nationalistic right-wing ideals that they should have a place to share these ideas. And, and it's conceivable that there is advertising going on those pages, and that's generating money for these platforms. But as was um, articulated so clearly and so carefully by so many people, uh, the right to have an opinion does not give you the right to make uh, the world an unsafe place for others. Right. So do you think now that it just became, it was too much bad publicity, and at this point, Facebook can't have the bad publicity? Well, and I also think that this is a general reckoning of societal standards and this notion that um, some of these right-wing opinions um, might seem like they're a much bigger part of the world than they really are because they've had this social media um, platform in which to sort of amplify their views. And in fact, it's actually a very small segment of the population. They just tend to be really loud. Ah, well, that is so true, right? So is this, do you think, going to become the norm, Blaine, at other platforms as well, where it's essentially, if you're going to cause them some bad publicity, you're not going to be welcome on their website? Well, I think that really it's going to be, these are all sort of companies that are operating um, as private companies, and so they are not beholden to anybody. Um, but Twitter is an interesting counterpoint to what's happening at Facebook. Right. Jack Dorsey, the CEO, was actually in meetings with Trump again last week, and there's been some information leaked out um, from some people connected to Twitter that the reason that they're not more forceful about getting rid of some of this um, some of these these people who are active on Twitter is because if they enforce those rules, then they have to actually kick off a whole bunch of Republican politicians who are also violating those rules. And that is a step that they seem to be unwilling to take. So the knock-on effects, and this is something that Facebook is clearly um, dealing with today, is if you are going to be um, promoting these same ideas, whether or not you are defined as being a hateful individual, if you're going to promote the ideas of those people, you are off. And so it'll be interesting to see what the repercussions are from some of the other people who might not realize that they're going to be impacted. Interesting. All right, Blaine, thank you so much for this. Happy to join you. That was great. That's Blaine Kyla, who's a technology journalist at SoloCorp. You've probably heard of that Netflix show, 13 Reasons Why. Maybe you've heard about it for all the wrong reasons. In it, there's a 17-year-old named Hannah who kills herself in a scene that shows her suicide. Now, when that show first came out in April, about two years ago, researchers raised a lot of concerns about the possibility that this could lead to, you know, kids, youth, vulnerable youth getting the wrong idea about suicide, that explicit depictions of this could actually lead people to copy the method. Settle in, because I'm about to tell you the story of my life, more specifically why my life ended. And if you're listening to this tape... You're one of the reasons why. Whatever Hannah thought she saw, she lied about it on those tapes because she's a crazy drama queen who just killed herself for attention. 
Hannah has secrets, Mrs. Baker. Hannah's secrets are what killed her. Maybe I'll never know why you did what you did. But I can make you understand how it felt. Sounds, you know, well, like harmful. So, sounds, I should say, harmless maybe to some people, but in the end, it turned out to not be the case at all for a lot of young people out there. A study of suicide rates among children in the United States between the ages of 10 and 17 found a 28.9% increase in April of 2017. That's a th- almost 30% increase in the number of young people who killed themselves the month after that show was released. We wanted to talk to one of the researchers who conducted this study uh, and talk about why actually this happened, what it is that they looked at. So we're joined now by Dr. Lisa Horowitz, who's a staff scientist and pediatric psychologist at the National Institute of Mental Health in the United States. Dr. Horowitz, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. I know this is a difficult topic, but what is it that you took a look at in your study? Sure, and thank you so much for having me. So what we looked at was whether or not there was an association between the release of 13 Reasons Why and an increase in the suicide rate among youth and then uh, adults, emerging adults and then full adults. Okay, and why did you think that there might be an association? So there are best practice guidelines for when either entertainment media or news media releases Um, portrayals of suicide, and those best practice guidelines were not followed, so we had some concerns about the graphic depiction of the suicide um, and that youth are so, you know, vulnerable and at risk. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for youth, not only in the United States, but worldwide. And so what did you find when you looked at this? What we found was that April, which is the month that was um, directly, so the, the series released on March 31st. And if you look at April 2017, you find the greatest spike in youth suicide um, over the whole five-year uh, five study period. Really? So was there any other reason that yes. that might have happened? So that's a good question. Um, we also used rate as a comparator because usually if something else is going on in the world that would affect socio-behavior behavior, um, you would see a rise in homicide rate too and we did not find any significant raise in the homicide rate. Okay, so you're, you believe that our investigators, researchers believe that it was a direct link to 13 Reasons Why? Well, you know, you, you never can um, really confirm causation, but what the study really looked at was just was there an association and was there a relationship? And so directly after the release of the series, there was an increase. And in fact, we even went back and looked at the past 19 years, and that April had the highest spike of any month in a 19-year period. Interesting. How, how, what does this tell us then about how influential this kind of entertainment or this kind of media is? Right, so that's our concern, that that media has this big influence on young people. And also there's this new phenomenon of binge-watching, which, you know, didn't really exist in the past. So all 13, uh, all 13 episodes were released on the same day. So it was possible that some, that a youth who was already at risk, feeling isolated, could have watched all 13 episodes in one sitting. And so we're concerned that these portrayals have a bigger impact on young, vulnerable people than expected. Yeah, what age group are we talking about here? Yeah, so we're looking at the 10 to 17-year-olds. We also looked at emerging adults, 18 to 29, and then um, adults 30 and over. There was no significant increase in the emerging adults or the adults, just the youth, 10 to 17. Okay. And that is where the greatest um, risk of suicide is because that is the second leading cause of death. And um, in 2017, 6,769 young people took their own lives. And so that suicide rate has been so hard to decrease. Uh, I'm from the NIMH and we have a goal to reduce the suicide rate by 20% uh, by 2025. 
And it's so hard to knock that rate down that really the last thing we need is something that increases the rate. Right. So what is it that, um, like, when you talk about the first season, obviously that had a reaction, but the second season has come out as well. Has there been a chance to examine that? We have not examined those data. In the second season, there were some better precautions uh, put in place. So, for example, the actors came out before each season and said, if you're struggling with depression or mental illness that you you know, here's a way to get help. And um, I think that was better. That didn't happen in the first season. It's fascinating that just like a small message like that can actually make such a huge difference. Yeah, well, those there's, you know, we don't have data to show what happened after the release of the second season, but though that was definitely something that was missing during the release of the first season. Right. Is this a growing body of research, would you say, Dr. Horowitz, this idea of looking at how vulnerable youth are impacted by these messages in the media? Yeah, it's such a major public health crisis right now. So I think there's a lot of research going on in all different areas, and I certainly think that this will definitely be an up-and-coming area. You talked about best practices. What are some of those best practices? Yeah. Like what do companies and, and producers and everything need to keep in mind when talking about or portraying topics like this? Right. So it's, it's always dangerous when you have such a graphic depiction of suicide. So in 13 Reasons Why, not only did they show the actual method, but it was almost prescriptive. They showed the character going to the pharmacy to buy the method. They showed the clothes she picked out. So it really shouldn't be so detailed. There's also a guideline that you don't publicize the suicide note. And 13 Reasons Why was really 13 hours of a very detailed suicide note. There's also um, some suggestions that you don't make it a, a goal, like getting revenge or um, trying to accomplish something and 13 Reasons Why was about getting revenge, and then they have the main character who was dead appear in every single episode. So it almost looked like you could, you know, get your revenge and then be around to enjoy it. Right. What we don't want want vulnerable youth to think is that suicide is an option. Suicide should never be an option. And so if the messages could be more if you're struggling that you can... um, get help. And if you can destigmatize mental illness, destigmatize suicide, um, those could bring messages of hope. The other thing that happened was what we always tell young people is that if you're in trouble, you seek out a trusted adult. And actually all the adults in 13 Reasons Why were very ineffective, including the parents, including the principal of the school, the mental health clinician. And so that's, that's not a great message. The message should be, if you're in trouble, turn to a trusted adult. It sounds like pretty much everything you shouldn't do was done in this particular show. Best practice guidelines were not followed. I'll, let's just say that. That's a very diplomatic way of putting it. Uh, do you think that we've <laughs> learned lessons from this? Like, do you think this is now with this kind of information out there, do you think the en- entertainment industry is actually paying attention? I think I, I think so. I think this has um, really raised concerns of unintended consequences. I I don't think anybody meant to increase a suicide rate. I, I don't think anybody would want that. But now we have to pay attention to the fact that media portrayals may have an influence that we had not expected in a very serious way. Well, Dr. Horowitz, thank you for talking to us about this today. Sure. And if anybody you know is uh, at risk for suicide, really asking directly, are you thinking of killing yourself, is really the best way to help them. It doesn't put the idea into their head. That's an important myth to debunk. Oh, okay. So does that make the person, if they are thinking about that, then they stop and go, oh, okay, somebody just vocalized that. Yeah, like there's a myth, and this is one message we really want to get out to anybody who works with children, parents, teachers, coaches, Uh, nurses, doctors, that there's a myth that if you ask someone about suicide, you're going to put the idea into their head. And actually, it's actually the opposite. There's at least four research studies that refute that myth. So 
the best way to keep a teenager from killing themselves is to say, are you thinking of killing yourself? Really directly, it makes them know someone cares, and most likely they're going to want to talk about it, and then you can get them help. Well, that is great advice. Thank you again for joining us today. Sure, and thank you for having me. That's Dr. Lisa Horowitz, a staff scientist and pediatric psychologist at the National Institute of Mental Health in the United States. That was some excellent advice that she just gave there. And I did not know that. I, w- I thought the myth, you know, was true on that one. But she's saying that is not the case. If you know a youth who is struggling or you think uh, they might be having some problems, that the best way to help is to directly ask them if they are thinking about killing themselves because that often reaches out to, ends up with them reaching out for the help that they need. Whereas most of the time we're too afraid to do that because we think that's going to put the idea in their head. So I certainly learned something talking to Dr. Horowitz today and we thank her for her time. Well, if you are on Instagram, then listen up. Something's going to be changing here in Canada this week. The company is launching a test in Canada that's going to make those like counts on your posts private for some users, meaning if I were to just peruse your Instagram, I won't see how many likes your posts got. A spokesperson for Facebook, which owns Instagram, said that the test is part of an effort to encourage users to focus more on the photos and videos being shared rather than how many likes they receive. So they said a select group of Canadian users will have the number of likes and video views removed from their Instagram feeds, permalink pages, and profiles. So they'll still be able to see them privately, like you as the account holder will still be able to see, but the other public, other people, your followers will not. So what does that mean for people who consider themselves to be Instagram influencers? Well, to find out how it will impact the business of Instagram, CKNW contributor Claire Allen caught up with Nina Hoen. Nina is a Vancouver-based digital influencer and content creator. She has more than 60,000 followers on Instagram and more than 175,000 subscribers on YouTube. And here's their conversation. Could you explain to me and the listeners your job as an Instagram influencer, what that means? So as an Instagram influencer, I am essentially creating content um, that I'm posting on Instagram. And it's kind of up to you how often you post, what you want to post. Everyone is um, very different in how they conduct their business. Essentially, I am creating photos, video content, and sharing that with my audience in simplistic terms. (laughs) What made you want to sort of create content on the Instagram platform? So I actually started on YouTube and I kind of feel like Instagram is one of those platforms. Like if you're thinking about YouTube, Twitter, um, Pinterest, Instagram, it's one of those platforms that everyone kind of has. I think not, you don't need to have all of them, but Instagram one is, Instagram is one that everyone is kind of on. And so I really just, started it as a secondary platform to my YouTube and I really focused all of my energy on the other platform but then I found that each platform is very different in how people engage with you in the kinds of content that you can create and so I honestly just started by like posting whenever I had new video content and then every now and then I would post like the outfit that I was wearing and I found that people were engaging with that and kind of liked the um unfiltered, unprocessed, kind of just, this is me right now in my everyday life. And I think that's how people wanted to connect with me. And so eventually I just started doing it more and more. And it's kind of built itself to be a platform that is me going through my personal journey on a public platform. I know influencers are known Mm -hmm. for collaborating with brands and that's something you're no stranger to. So can you tell me a little bit about the brands that you've collaborated with and some of your major career highlights so far? Some of the big ones that I've worked with would include Maison Margiela Fragrances. That one was kind of like my first designer brand, and that was an influencer trip. I'm also working with H&M, which is huge. Um, I'm one of their H&M League members, and so they flew us out to Coachella. They have us make content on a yearly contract. And so that was a really, really, really big opportunity And actually my first job ever, because I started with making thrift content and that was kind of all I was creating. So my first job ever was with Value Village and it just couldn't have been more fitting. And I think those are kind of 
the big ones, Converse, I work with a lot, Hudson Bay, so very Canadian, which I love. <laughs> um, yeah, so those are, those are, I think, the main ones right now. Could you explain to our listeners what goes into these content collaborations and how much work you put into this? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, when I was starting out, I honestly, I don't blame anybody for not really understanding because before I even did it and I would watch other influencers, other YouTubers, Instagrammers, I didn't understand kind of the process that um, is all happening behind the scenes. And so basically a brand will either, either reach out to you or you would reach out to them. Um, in my experience, 99.9% of the opportunities that I have are from brands emailing me. Um, and usually they're saying, we want to work with you. We have this upcoming campaign. We have this new product, et cetera. And we think you'd be a great fit. We're looking for, say, two Instagram posts and two sets of Instagram stories. And so at that point, you would send them back your rate, however much it is that you decide. There's no there's no magic number. There's no, if, the, if you have this many followers or this many likes on average, then you should be charging this much. Everyone decides their rates differently. Um, but there definitely is, um, like, there are things to consider. So if a company at, at my kind of size right now, um, a, a couple of companies do come to me and offer things for less than a thousand dollars, but I don't do that just because I know the work that goes into it, and I know that other companies are willing to pay more for it. And so I think what a lot of people kind of have a misconception about is the same for anyone in any other creative field, say like a photographer, graphic designer. It's oh, if it takes you one hour to do, then it should only tra- like be like twenty dollars an hour, fifty dollars an hour, but as a creative, you're not being paid for the hours. You're being paid for the amount of time over your lifetime or over your career that you've mastered these skills and allows you to do it in a short amount of time. So um, I, my rates kind of, they're, they were built kind of on other collaborations and partnerships that I had done. And I'm like, okay, if this company is willing to pay me this much, then that's kind of, where my threshold is now and I won't accept anything lower. And so it's not just creating the content. You also have to think about things like exclusivity. So if you are saying that you will work with this brand, but they don't want you to work with any other fashion brand, any other beauty brand, then you have to take that into account because are they paying you enough to not accept other jobs? Um, And then also where is it being promoted? How are they using it? Um, Do you own the content? Do they own the content? So there's actually a lot of legal, there's a lot of contracts, a lot of back and forth. Um, and then you also have to go through rounds of approval. So you create the content, you have to send it to them. And every client is different, obviously, but some clients will send it back and they'll want um, revisions done. And so you have to take into account that time. So there is, there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes, a lot of emailing. Um, but yeah, I, I don't blame anybody for not really understanding <laughs> how, how it works before you get into it yourself. Why we're speaking today is because of the news that Instagram Canada is going to be testing out um, a, so they're going to be testing out sort of removing public likes from certain accounts to see, mm-hmm. you know, what the reaction is. And I'm just wondering what your reaction is to the news that Instagram is going to be doing that in Canada. So initially I was kind of scared and worried and I was like, I don't understand. Like this doesn't seem to make any sense. I don't think that it's going to help. And I think now after reading more articles and thinking about it more, letting it sit a little bit more. I have mixed feelings. So it's kind of, it's not really one way or the other. I think that they're trying to do it to help kind of awareness about mental health and how social media can be a big detriment. And it's, it's a way that people use to like compare themselves to other people and feel less than about themselves. And so I, I do see that. I don't, know if removing the number of likes is going to fix all of that. It it can't because regardless, you're going to see a photo of someone in Ibiza and still wish that that was you, regardless of whether or not that person has a lot of likes. I think that the main issue that it's trying to combat where people are caring less about the number and more about the quality of their content, I feel like it works and it doesn't work just because for me personally, I've built a platform where I want to be authentic and regardless of whether or not people are engaging it, I will still make the kind of content that I'm creating. And so I know that not everyone feels that way about Instagram. Not everyone has the same goals. And so 
that's where it kind of becomes complicated because I've listened to a lot of other people's opinions about it. And I think that it kind of operates out of that person's desire to just have likes for the sake of likes. And because that is somehow measuring your self-worth. And at the end of the day, nothing likes or um, other people's opinions really should reflect on how you feel about yourself. And I think that's always going to be a personal journey. And so I have very conflicting feelings about it. <laughs> yeah, and I, I definitely see that about the mental health aspect and, and maybe for younger users of the platform. But what about from a business aspect, like for what you do mm-hmm. with brand partnerships? Are you concerned about the number of public likes not being visible and how it will impact sort of your business? I think I am in kind of initially, but what I do know about like any of those platforms, like Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, it's very quick to adjust and sometimes it will even change, like say like the algorithm changes and then we all have to catch up. So regardless, things will change in the future and this might be the path that it goes on. And I think that if you're not able to see likes, then it might be hard. So if you look at some people's profiles right now and you see that they're, they have a huge following, so say like it's maybe 100,000 followers, and that's a lot. But then you look at their likes, and then you see that 16 people are liking their posts on average, then that automatically tells you that they bought their followers and that it's not an authentic following. And so you probably wouldn't want to partner with them. And so I feel like in that respect, it helps companies, like it does the opposite effect where it it helps companies to see how many likes you're getting because is it consistent with the amount of followers? And so at the end of the day, likes does not equal sales. And that's what companies care about. The number of likes, I think, eventually won't matter if this is kind of the direction that Instagram is going to take because companies will realize that people are still commenting. Um, It's still like you can still report it because I believe that the user, so say if it's on my profile, then I would still be able to see the numbers. So I would still be able to share that with brands when they're inquiring about my reach. Um, It's just that other people won't be able to see it and they won't be able to see it without asking me for it. So I think that it's just going to change the dynamic. But I think that at the end of the day, like social media marketing, I think will always be here because it's a platform that people are on. It's a great way to reach people. And it's kind of like TV, but it's just evolved. Well, we'll see about these changes then that Instagram is making here in Canada and what that means for influence influencers. That is Nina Hohen, a Vancouver-based digital influencer and content creator. If you want to learn more about the content she creates, you can find her, yes, on Instagram, at your girl Neens, N-E-E-N-S, or just Neens on YouTube. When we come back, time for our loser and winner of the day.